So with that, why don't you open up your Bibles, and we'll get into the Word of God, which is our focus here uh, during this time. And we're going to be in Isaiah 63. How many of you remember Paul Harvey? Anybody? Okay. Everybody who's younger than about 20 is like, nope. Right. Paul Harvey was a radio personality for over 56 years. You guys remember what his show was called? The Rest of the Story. Yes. In the mid-1960s, he put out a social essay called, If I Were the Devil. He did this in an attempt to comment on the decline of our society, basically talking about the plan of the devil in order to bring down uh, our society in the United States. Now, much of it was just the opinion of one man, but it's got some great quotes in it. It says things like this, If I were the devil, to the young I would whisper the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what is bad is good and what is good is square. I love that line. And to the old, I would teach to pray and to say after me, Our Father, which art in Washington. Mm, Much hasn't changed. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions. Man, we find that in the church like crazy. I'd let those run wild. But it is the first line that is so interesting to me. He says, If I were the prince of darkness, I would want to engulf the whole earth in darkness. Now, what's interesting to me about that statement, I believe it's very true, the question then becomes, wouldn't you notice, wouldn't we notice if the whole earth is covered in darkness? One would think so. But Satan is clever, man. He's clever. He's been doing this a really long time. And the Bible calls him the father of lies. And all he would have to do to engulf the whole earth in darkness is to get us to believe that darkness is actually light. That's his plan. He'd lie to us in a way that makes us think that darkness is good. He is and has come before as an angel of light. I was telling my children the other day because they were like, man, if, if Satan showed up, I'd just yell at him to go away. And I'd say, well, I said, well, how, did you, how would you know? Well, he'd be scary and horns and all the things they see in you know, cartoons or whatever else. And I said, oh, guys, no. When Satan shows up, he's purdy. He's enticing. He looks good, feels good, tastes good. You think he's good. That's why he's so clever. He lies to us. Now, how could he get us to believe a lie? How could he get us to discredit the truth? Well, there are really three ways to get people to believe a lie, I have noticed. Here's the first one. The first one is you tell them what they want to hear, and they'll believe it right away. If they're already believing a lie, they'll believe it. So, for example, tell most of the world there's no absolute truth. Do what you want. That's a lie, isn't it? But they'll believe it. Tell them what they want to hear. Secondly, another way is to tell them the truth unconvincingly. Right? Well, what does that mean, Hans? Tell them the truth unconvincingly? It's kind of like sarcasm, telling the truth with a smile. <laughs> you're such a dork. Now, if I say it, you're such a dork. Right? Two totally different statements right there. The first one is, is you're telling the person under the radar so that they don't actually believe it, but you're trying to tell them the truth, right? Tell them the truth unconvincingly. You speak it, but they don't actually hear it. So you get people to joke about God, to talk about him. There's lines in movies about him, but really we're just being sarcastic about God, so nobody believes it. Now the whole world outside the church will do the first two, but I think that what's crept into the church is this third one. Tell them part of the truth, but not the whole truth. Tell them part of the truth, but not the whole truth. You see, is it true that God is love? Absolutely. With every ounce of my being, if I can enforce that for you this morning, it's a good day. God is love. 1 John Four eight. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It's right there, black and white. But here's the question. Is God also a wrathful, righteous judge? Yes. yes. Nahum 1.2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. He's full of faith, faithful, and he's full of wrath, wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries 
and keeps wrath for his enemies. Oh, Hans, that's just the Old Testament God. No, guys, we're not Gnostics who believe that the Old Testament God and New Testament God are different. Here's the New Testament, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress. Suppress the truth. In other words, act on Satan's side. We're at war. We've talked about this a lot through Isaiah. And you are either for God or against him. So, what's crept into the church is this lie that is speaking part of the truth, not the whole truth. God is both loving and just in his wrath. He's both savior and judge. But our society has stated that true love requires no judgment, no discipline, no consequences, no order. The church has in large part believed this lie, and in many of our mainstream megachurches, and in even small ones like our own, there is no such thing as loving church discipline, because if God is love, why would you have church discipline? In many Christian homes, parents rarely enforce loving discipline, even though the Word of God commands them to do so. Well, that's just an old antiquated idea, they might say. Others within the church and other avenues of, of Christian life, they have focused on authority so heavily that they have abused church membership and church discipline. They have used the authority of God to inflict abuse on congregants and on family members, fathers who just beat their children instead of discipline them in terms of discipleship out of love. Those abusers believe the lie that God's wrath was without love, and they have now enforced for their victims the opposite, that God's love is only valid if it's without authority. You see how Satan has worked in the church? Instead of staying in the balance of God being both loving and full of wrath for those that disobey, we have decided to swing to one side of the pendulum or the other. We have basically incapacitated the power of Jesus. We've turned him into a patsy. The prophets, including Isaiah, they knew this balance between God's wrath and his love. They knew that there could not be a day of loving salvation and redemption without also at the exact same time seeing a day of wrathful judgment. God's mercy and God's wrath must exist together or not at all. And this is the truth of the Bible. And for the prophets and for the people of Israel, the reason for this was because salvation to them wasn't, it was much less about being transported to another place when you die. That's what we mainly think about when we talk about salvation. Where will I end up when I die? The good place or the bad place? But for them, it wasn't that. It was more about attaining rest and security from their enemies. When God said, I will save you, they went, great, you're going to destroy the Babylonians? You're going to destroy the Assyrians? You're going to destroy those that are against you and your people? Now, universalism is the belief that everyone should be saved. They should get to go to the good place. That's what universalism is at its core. But heaven is not the point. Jesus is the point. And to say that it's a good God that drags people who want nothing to do with him into his presence for eternity, that's not a very good God, is it? You see, if you want heaven but you don't want Jesus, you don't really want heaven. If you want heaven but you don't want God's people, you don't really want heaven. You want some place where you get to be God. And you must understand that we as humans... We have the right to choose. One of the things I've noticed in myself and in evangelicalism in general is we go to people and we tell them the gospel, but we don't let them choose. You ever notice this? No, but you really want Jesus. Come on, let me manipulate you and get your emotions going and drag you and drag you and drag you towards Jesus. And these poor non-believers are standing there going, no, I hate Jesus. I want nothing to do with him. And we think if we just tell them the better argument that we might get them to like Jesus more. But see, the reality is, is if they want to choose hell, God's given them that choice. 
And therefore, they get to choose whatever they want beyond that as well. They get to choose evil. And our goal as Christians is not to manipulate them. Our job is to give them the truth and let them choose. Our goal is to present them with the gospel truth that a good God loves them so much he gave himself for them to pay for all that they've done and all that we've done. And they get to decide whether they want to be in relationship. You see, heaven is very, very exclusive. It's for people that really only want to covenant with God and with his people. It's exclusive. And for us to try and manipulate people in a way where we say, oh, no, it's not exclusive. You're, you're getting close to universalism in a really big way. It's exclusive for those that desire to be broken and humbled and repentant at the feet of a good God who has rescued us from the evil of our own rebellion. Because, you see, evil is not something that's out there. It's something right here. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a Russian writer and novelist, he said, the battle line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man. And so as we look at Isaiah and we look at our text today, we just got done looking at this glorious vision of Zion, this glorious vision of the Messiah who is king over God's kingdom. And we've looked at this the last two weeks and been in awe of God's goodness, but at the same time for that to exist today, what we're going to hear is the reality that for that salvation to exist, God's judgment must exist at the same time. Now, one last caveat before we step into it. I have to admit that I really didn't want to go through this today. I thought about switching texts because of how it starts. It just starts discussing bloodshed, blood on the ground, and quite honestly, this week is the last week I want to preach a sermon that has those words in it. But as I prayed over it and as I read it over and over and over this week, I think what you'll find along with me is that this is the perfect text for this week. I think that as we read it today, what we will see is this. We have the answer for the world that is asking so many questions right now, and this is what the answer is for them. For God to be loving, he must also execute wrath. And I want to be clear with you that his wrath had nothing to do with the deaths of the people that were murdered. But the murderer, right at this moment, is standing under the wrathful hand of an angry God. And he will not get away. For God to be loving, he must also execute wrath. My hope this morning is that in understanding this, it will give us a knowledge of God's goodness as well as great comfort in the midst of a world filled with tragedy and evil as the world asks, what is God doing? The first thing that we're going to see this morning is this. The Lord will bring vengeance to his enemies and salvation to his people. The Lord will bring vengeance to his enemies and salvation to his people. To set the stage, we must remember back in Isaiah 62 a few of the comments that were made there. So let's take a look there. You're already in 63. Look back with me just a few verses to Isaiah 62, 6. Isaiah 62, 6. It says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set a watchman. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest, and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So you can imagine the walls of Jerusalem, and he set these watchmen up there that are looking out, and they're trying to see what God is doing down the road. And his job for them is to hold God accountable to his promise. And what's his promise? Well, go forward to verse 11 there. Now, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes, and his recompense before him. And so God has said, man, go look, go watch, and they will hold me accountable to my promise, my promise that salvation has come. So they're looking out there, and they're looking, waiting for salvation to come. And remember, they're not looking for, uh, you know, uh, a way to get to heaven, right? That's not the salvation they're looking for. The salvation they're looking for is how are our enemies going to be defeated? So they're looking for this great army to come on God's behalf. 
They look out in the distance, and chapter 63 begins telling what they see. Verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Now he speaks, and he's quoted as saying, It is I. Who's I? The one we've been reading about for so many months. The servant of God, the suffering servant that suffered on our behalf for us. The one that will be king, the one that will conquer the enemies of God. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. In other words, I am coming to save. But then they ask, okay, if you're coming to save, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? It's like you've been standing in a vat of wine And he says, I have trodden the winepress alone. Now, the winepress is a symbol in the Bible of wrath, treading out the grapes, crushing them. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Now you can see why I struggled with teaching this this week. The bloodshed is graphic, and to those that desire to make God seem evil, this text, taken out of context, is a good one to use. How is this guy, this Jesus, any different from the guy who shed blood in Las Vegas? That will be the question. Be prepared for it. How is he any different? One is wrathful and evil, and the other is wrathful and Christian. What do you think? Well, he's just. How are the two different? We're going to see. For salvation to occur to those that are looking for it, their enemies must be dealt with. The enemies of God must be dealt with. And so the one mighty to save comes in righteousness from Edom, having executed his righteous wrath. This is not a logistical uh, nugget that tells us when God's going to arrive or where he's going to arrive or how he's going to arrive. This is, that would be missing the point of what Isaiah is trying to say. What Isaiah is trying to say is that God will destroy the enemies of his people. Now, Edom is very often used in the Bible to discuss the enemies of Israel. It's kind of like, you know, if you want to hate the the bulls, you say Michael Jordan. I know I'm dating myself, right? Okay. (laughs) But Edom is used as a picture of all of the enemies of Israel. And the fight uh, between Edom and Israel goes all the way back to Jacob and Esau. You guys remember those stories? You remember the stories of Jacob tricking Esau out of his birthright and his blessing? The descendants of Edom and Israel came to blows many generations later. Israel was trying to leave from Egypt and go to the promised land, and they asked Edom, can we pass through? And Edom, Edom said, no going, you're not going to. And so for the rest of the time of the kingdoms, they were fighting, and Edom was a thorn on the side of Israel. And so Scripture uses them often to typify the enemies of Israel. Like, for example, Malachi 1. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, remember the Lord of hosts is a term of a general of an army, okay? It's a warfare term. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Isaiah's emphasis using Edom here, saying that he has come from Edom and he's covered in blood, is a statement that he wiped out the enemies of Israel. He wiped out the enemies of his people. And that is why this same picture is used over and over throughout the Bible, especially at the end of the Bible where the Messiah in blood-soaked apparel is used in the book of Revelation to show that at the end of days, everyone who is against him, all enemies of the righteous, good God, will be destroyed. For those of us that are Christians, that's a good thing. Because you see, people who are against God aren't just people who didn't get the argument right. 
or didn't hear the best argument. They're people who went against the God we serve. We have got to stop using the language, but they're just such a good person. They're a good person who hates the good God. That's a person who is against God. They're only good if God has imputed his goodness and righteousness to them. I am only good because God has imputed his righteousness and goodness to me. And so Revelation, it says this, this will be the end of days, and as sure as the nose on my face, it will happen. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. On Sunday, that wicked evil coward took his own life before the authorities could get to him. He thought he was escaping. This is who he came face to face with. Let that sink in for a second. I take great comfort in knowing that. Now you might say, Hans, that's not very Jesus-like. Guys, have you read Jesus' words? Woe to you, Bethsaida and Chorazin. Woe to you. It will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day that I come back. Hey, Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs who don't have real relationship with me. Jesus was not a pansy. Notice that no one went after him when he walked into the temple grounds and flipped tables. Try that in here. You'll have about five dudes with concealed carries on you in a minute. But nobody touched Jesus. See, Jesus has a power about him that I take great comfort in. Now, I want to pause to address the world's usual view of God when he's shown in these kinds of scriptures so that you are equipped to face their criticism. To the world, and maybe even to some of us today, this view of God is horrific. How could a loving God look just as bloodthirsty as this mass murderer? But I would submit to you that that's the wrong question to ask. It seems to me that if God is righteous and just, then those who are unrepentant in their sin deserve the vengeance of God. It seems to me that if God is righteous and just, he will bring his full wrath against the murderer of 58 souls. It seems to me that if God is righteous and just, he will bring the fullness of wrath against the unrepentant abusive father or abusive pastor or the unrepentant child molester or the unrepentant thief. You see, I fear that we have bought into a Jesus whose love is so shallow and perverse that we believe Jesus forgives unrepentant people. Well, just forgive the abuser that molested you when you were a child. It'll free you. No, it won't. It will lay a burden on that person for the rest of their life that they're the problem, not the abuser. That is a wrong view of forgiveness. Forgiveness is available for all that are repentant. Jesus forgives unrepentant sin and calls for vengeance upon wrongdoing when there is no repentance. And quite honestly, the example in the Bible is that we should do that as well. Turn with me to Psalm 109. Psalm 109. I want you to hear David's words. David is a man after God's own heart who made tons of mistakes, but overall we look to him as a man who sows great truth. And David was a man who wrote tons of psalms begging for the Lord's mercy upon himself and upon those who went against him. 
that they would be saved. But when that salvation was spurned and there was no repentance, look at the words that David uses in speaking to God. Never got taught this in Sunday school, by the way. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. See, God reached out his arms and said, guys, I want to be in deep relationship with you. And people spurned that. He says, appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he has tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. You getting adrift here? Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your namesake because your steadfast love is good Deliver me. Give me salvation. Positive, encouraging, Caleb. I'm going to seriously suggest to him that they send this out as their next verse of the day. Just 31 straight days of destroy the wicked, right? Now, immediately you can think of times where Jesus says, forgive them for they know not what they do on the cross as he looks at the soldiers. But guys, remember, those soldiers had no clue what they were doing. They had never been presented the gospel. They were Romans who showed up. They saw, took one look, and they went, wow, that is the guy. Right? He cursed the Pharisees. He cursed those who heard the story, who got the choice and refused it. How often do we pray this way? How often have you ever prayed this way? O righteous God, destroy the wicked. Castrate the molesters and rapists. Kill the murderers before they kill. Bring terror to the terrorists. Destroy those in positions of power that abuse. That should be right there next to praying for those in power, asking for people to be saved, healing those that are sick. Because if we did pray this way, what kind of effect would it have on us? Here's what I believe the effect would be on me. If I prayed this way, that God should bring destruction to the wicked, it would require me to take my sin a whole lot more seriously. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, like all the sinners, and we're all sinners, so Lord, just, you know, do as you please. No, Lord, destroy the wicked, and if I'm the wicked, destroy me along with them. It would cause us not to live in apathy any longer. And that is why back in Isaiah 63.3, there was no one to help him execute righteous justice. He alone is righteous and just. All of us, myself as the chiefest of sinners, deserve his wrath. If God is good, if God is just, then a guy like me deserves death and hell, and so do you. And so did Israel. And so this caused the watchman to begin a separate prayer. And you might say that this is a great example of a sinner's prayer. Let's take a look next at this part. The watchman's prayer of remembrance, humility, and dependence. First we see the prayer of remembrance. Let's go back to Isaiah 63. And we're going to see the prayer of remembrance. 
He sees him coming in blood-soaked clothing, and he says in verse 7 this very seemingly odd statement because it counters his judgment, but it's the truth. Verse 7, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion. You see, he understood now by seeing God going against his enemies that they were his enemies, and everything they've deserved thus far is just grace. He says, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. He's talking about the history of Israel here. And in all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. He's talking about the exodus here as they walked through the desert. And in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But, as we've read the story in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Guys, do you ever act like me and question God's goodness? <laughs> when things don't go my way, I'm amazed at how quickly it rolls off my tongue. In moments like Sunday, most of us might. But that is the point of this entire book that we look at every week. The book that we hold in our hands, that God in that Bible when presented with a lump of clay that was garbage, that was rebellious and sinful against his unending love. He took out of that garbage a man named Abraham to bring, uh, to bring him out of idolatry and grow a people from him that would be a witness to the world of God's goodness. That he is righteous and just. Remember who the Israelites were when he went into covenant with them? What were they? Were they good children who did everything their father wanted? No, they were golden calf worshipers in the midst of an orgy against God. And yet, he called them to relationship anyway. And to show this, he took them from slavery and caused them to be free, and he gave them a land in which to rest and grow. And he took them as his own and asked them to covenant with them, with him. But rather than thankfulness and excitement at the prospect of deeper relationship and commitment, they rebelled and groaned and criticized God and in doing so, they made themselves enemies of the very being who is calling them to loving relationship. He grieved their spirit. What was this grieving of spirit? We use it today in our hyper-Pentecostal world as anything that doesn't seem spiritual. You're grieving the spirit. I can't even tell you how many times I've had people with bad Pentecostal theology come up and tell me at the end of a service, well, that really grieved the spirit, that teaching you just did. It wasn't spiritual enough. Guys, the reality is, is that grieving the spirit is disobedience. <laughs> right here. That's what it is. Grieving the Spirit is disobedience. The watchman remembered the goodness of God and his own people's response of rebellion and grumbling. And that causes him to remember the goodness of God, the wickedness of himself and his people, and that drives him to the next part of the prayer, the prayer of humility. Take a look at verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation? Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, Yahweh, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage." Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary, and we have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Now, we read this just straightforward as an accusation, but the reality is that it's more of a statement of guilt and humility. Verse 17, where he says, Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways, and why do you harden our hearts? It's in context of the Exodus statement he's just made. Now, guys, tell me, who is the person who hardened his heart in the midst of the Exodus? 
Pharaoh. Three times in that story, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Seven times his heart was hardened in a cooperation between him and God. And six times it says God hardened his heart. The Romans 1 verbiage is that if we sin, God gives us over to our sin. He doesn't force us. He doesn't manipulate us. He simply gives us a choice. And so the watchman is saying here, while we were once related to our father Abraham, our protector, and we were once to be redeemed by you, our kinsman redeemer, now we're not. We're not even your citizens or subjects. It's a cry of humility. God, you are good. I am not. That's it. I have rebelled against you. You wanted deep, intimate, covenant love with me, and I said, yeah, no, I kind of want to do my own thing. I'm going to have one foot in and one foot out. I'm not so sure. It was rebellion. And so from there, he says, I get this, and so I realize that I need you. The prayer of dependence. Take a look at 64 verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. What he's saying here is, Lord, I know that you are close to people who are obedient to you, who follow you, who walk in your ways. And you're not to those who are your enemies. That's pretty obvious, right? But then he says, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. I can say a hearty amen to that in my own life. And shall we be saved? In other words, do we even deserve it, God? Can you even do it? We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay. And you are our potter, we are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Yahweh, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? We often in this church sing a a song that's based upon this chapter. Oh, that you'd come, tear open the sky, Jesus come down. We'll sing it today. And that song is not buying into the false notion that we often hear on Sundays that we have to invite Jesus to be with his people. Lord, we invite you into this place. Guys, he's already there. I seriously think if Jesus could audibly speak at that moment, he'd be like, who are you waiting for? Well, it's not spiritual enough. We don't feel it enough yet. I'm right here. Why do we know that? Tell me, church. Why do we know that God is with his people? He's here and he's here. His spirit dwells amongst his people. We don't have to invite him. And so the song isn't buying into that false notion. He's already with his people individually and corporately. But this is first a cry to remake them. He's saying remake us like a potter remakes the vessel. Regenerate us so that our allegiance to Yahweh might be genuine. Can I just speak to anyone in this audience who knows that they are apathetic in their walk? It's time to stop. Choose a side. Choose this day whom you will serve. God does not work with apathetic people. Be hot, be cold. Don't be lukewarm. So he cries, regenerate them. And sometimes that's what we need to cry. They want to answer his sovereign call and allow their old man to be put to death along with the rest of the enemies of God and step into a new life of holy obedience. Church, this is what we should be praying for every day. Regenerate me and continue the work of regeneration. 
Lord, you have saved me. I am being saved, and I will be saved. Save me. Regenerate me every day. Now, the verse here that is often misused to back a form of cheap grace is there in verse 6. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. This is a very graphic verse for any of you who don't know it. Literally in Hebrew, none of the English translates it correctly, it literally says a garment of menstruation. Because in the minds of the Hebrews, that was a time of defilement for the woman, and it was a reminder of the fall of man. And the works of the Israelites were, Israelites were defiled because they didn't have the innate allegiance, the underlying foundation of faith in the grace and goodness of God. So any good that they did was just worthless. It was defiled. But don't let this make you force out the idea of works. Oh, I'm saved by grace. I don't ever have to work again. No, look at Revelation, the end of the story, 19.8. It was granted to the church, that's the her here, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is what? The righteous deeds of the saints. Always read in context. No, it's not works, because our works are just, you know, filthy, filthy rags. No, guys, that was specific. Our righteous deeds are to come out of faith, out of grace, but we are to do them. And if we don't do them, then were we saved in the first place anyway? We are justified by God's free gift of grace, but the works that we do in response are the gift that he gives us to clothe ourselves in his purity. Well, but not only is this a cry for regeneration, it's also a cry that God will act to bring vengeance upon those that are against him. Verse 11 and 12 is saying, God, people exiled us. They broke our homes down. They destroyed everything. Take vengeance on them. And this is not a sinful ask. You see, this is the sinner's prayer. Lord, you are good. I am not. I am a sinner who has rebelled against you. And I desire that if you are righteous and just, you will take vengeance upon the wicked. And so I lay myself at your mercy because I am wicked. Change me so that I am not wicked, so that I might follow you and bring your wrath against my old man. If you're sitting here today and you've never prayed that to your just and loving creator God, today is the day to do it. You don't need my backing in it. I will pray it with you in the back during worship. If you want to be a person that prays that prayer, come back and I will pray it with you or sit in your chair and pray it to the God that loves you and you will be justified. That prayer brings forth a response from God. And what we see here, the last big section, is God's response of justice, mercy, and promise. God's response of justice, mercy, and promise. The watchman says this prayer of asking for God's goodness and stating his own sinfulness. And look at how God responds. This is our God, folks. He is a God that responds with justice, mercy, and promise. And he starts there in verse 1 of chapter 65. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. The watchman approaches in humility and reverent fear and asks, can we even be saved, Yahweh? And I can't help but see the father here with his arms wide open approaching the watchman and saying, yes, of course you can. Of course you can. That's what I've wanted to do the whole time. I just wanted you to get it. Parents, you know how this is. There is not anything that breaks my heart more than watching my daughter hurt. Yes, she has me wrapped around her finger. I admit it. But to watch that four-year-old girl hurt in any capacity makes me want to kill someone. We just went camping, and she accidentally fell out of her chair and put her hand up against the fire uh, barrier and immediately got blisters on her finger. And I was, I was, I can't even say it. I was just like, <laughs> booted her chair. Stupid chair! Stupid fire! Ah! Right? Wrath! <laughs> Why? Because love was present. And I unfortunately, like most dads in that situation, went, Why did you do that? right? It was the worst thing you can say to your daughter that just got hurt. 
You can pray for my forgiveness later, right? <laughs> but the wrath was present because the love was. And God does this. He comes up to the, to the watchman and he goes, this is what I've wanted the whole time. When I discipline Kara, and, and it's the last thing I want to do, and then she comes to me afterwards and she says, you know, Daddy, are you mad at me? And I, of course not. Well, Daddy, I want to obey you. Uh, that's what I wanted the whole time for your good. Like, no, like, yeah, let's pray. Let's, let's talk. That's our God. That's our Father. He doesn't sit there and go, no. You didn't come to me fast enough. He doesn't manipulate. He doesn't hurt. He doesn't harm. He says, that's his, of course that's what I want. That's what I've desired all along. You see, God is not wrathful just to be wrathful. As any good dad is, he is so protective of his kids that his wrath comes when he sees them in danger, even danger from their own sin plaguing them. You see, the reason I get upset and wrathful at my children when they disobey and sin is not because I dislike them. It's because I am angry that they have bought into the lie of disobedience and I want it out and gone because I love them so much. That's the God we serve. His primary and foremost response to his children is open arms of love, even to those that have disobeyed him and become idol worshipers just like the Gentiles. You see, the God we serve is so gracious that to any person who was laying on that ground in Las Vegas and cried out to a loving God, I have disobeyed you my whole life, accept me into your arms. He did. They didn't need any training. They didn't need anything special. They simply were welcomed into his arms. He says, I've held out my hands to a people who provoke me. They sacrifice in their gardens, the second half of verse 3. And they make offerings on bricks who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both their iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their deeds. The Israelites that were supposed to be zealously responding, responding to Yahweh's grace looked to the world around them and behaved just like the world around them. They had the same idols, the same entertainment, the same pastimes. And they'd created in verse 5 a false spirituality where they thought they were holy, but they really weren't. They were just causing division. And these were the people of Judah that we have studied all along. And for God to be just, he brings wrath even on his own people when they're unrepentant. You see, becoming a Christian does not mean you can then act disobedient, unrepentant, and sinful and get away with it. I'm amazed at how much this is in the church. A person gossips or a person harms or a person does divisive work in the church and then people come around him and go, oh, that's okay, just forgive the person. No. The Bible says don't forgive them unless there's repentance. Go look it up. It's Jesus' words in Luke. We don't gloss over sin. We deal with it because that's what Christ did. You see, for God to be loving, he must also execute wrath. And all mankind, you and I, we deserve wrath merited out upon us for God to be just. And it will be to all those who are unrepentant in sin and idolatry that mess around in this life as if this isn't the most serious thing possible. They focus on everything else. They give their time, their talents, their treasure, their energy, their relationships to everything else. You can be assured that one day you're going to face the eternal punishment and wrath of God because that's what we all deserve. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But that is not what God desires. It is what's required of him for him to be just, but he is such a compassionate and good God that he initiated a plan that he could maintain his righteousness and justice and yet pave a way for you and I to be in his presence. He sent his only son to the cross to be the sacrifice upon which the wrath of the triune God was passed down. And so Revelation tells us that this wrath was not just the wrath of the father upon the son, an abusive father upon 
a harmed son. It was the wrath of both of them upon Jesus. Uh, we talk about the wrath of the Lamb there in Revelation 6 16. People will be so fearful and so angry at God that they'll say, Rocks cry out on us, hide us from the wrath of who? The one seated on the throne and the Lamb. Jesus poured his own wrath out upon himself. And the Father poured out his wrath upon the Son. And in that moment, Jesus took on the defilement of all the people that rebel and our old man and suffered in our place. And this is what Paul meant when he said, we are crucified with Christ. It's not that our sin got glossed over. The blood that is upon Jesus' garments, that is the defilement that came from him pouring wrath out upon our old man, upon himself. And that is why we have been crucified with Christ. That old man is now dead, paid for, removed. We walk in newness of life. God so loved the world. He loved you and he loved me that he came in human form and took his own wrath upon himself so that he could maintain his righteous goodness and still allow you and I to have relationship with him. If you've never recognized that you deserve that same just wrath, but you would like to accept his free gift of grace that pays for your sin and brings you into his presence, I would love to pray with you during the worship time or after service. For those of us that are disciples of Jesus today, we must understand that our application is to rejoice in the cross, to let today be a solemn but strong reminder that we have only escaped the wrath of God because of his own compassion toward us. And we need to let that compassion embolden us this week to examine our lives for sin and idolatry and division and to bring that to him in prayer that we might be dependent upon him and upon one another so that we might be zealous in defeating sin in our lives by its power. Let us bring those idols to each other so that we might support each other in that fight. And let us take solace, even in the midst of tragedy, that we will one day stand before our good God and say, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. God one day will remake heaven and earth as we will see next week. And in that kingdom will be those who desire to state that prayer of humility and remembrance and dependence and those who look to God for his gracious response. So this week, let us take stock of that sinner's prayer and look forward to next week and to the future ahead where we can look at his promises to renew all things.